Here is an excerpt from my article, Six Shots in Dallas, framing the perpetrator of the Kennedy assassination through the Zapruder film, 1963 to 2013. From the Journal of Perpetrator Research, Year 2, Issue 2, pages 180 to 206. To read the complete article, go to the Journal of Perpetrator Research online and read the article, which is available as a Creative Commons document. Abstract When three shots were fired at the John F. Kennedy motorcade in Dallas on the 22nd of November, 1963, Three important photographic shots were also taken of the scene. These images by amateur filmmaker Abraham Zapruder were seen by Americans as a kind of Rosetta Stone for deciphering the otherwise discordant language of the assassination and as a key to identifying the perpetrators. The Zapruder film was to yield two diametrically opposing interpretations conspiracy or no conspiracy, depending largely on the agendas of the viewers and their willingness or unwillingness to contextualize their interpretations with other evidence. While the Zapruder frames have turned out to tell us nothing about the actual perpetrators of this particular crime, the way they are remembered tells us much about the ideal political assassin of the American imagination. Tracing the different ways in which the Zapruder shots were interpreted since the 1960s and circulated across a variety of media, institutional settings, and contexts of display, this article discusses what these changes mean for the cultural memory of the Kennedy assassination in particular, and more generally, what these changes tell us about the evolving perception and definition of the political perpetrator in American society. Furthermore, the article explores the relation between visual sources and their changing status from documentary to evidentiary to iconic and political and historical interpretations of the act of perpetration. Six Shots in Dallas Framing the Perpetrator of the Kennedy Assassination Through the Zapruder Film, 1963-2013 by Richard A. Ryman Introduction at approximately 12.30 p.m. Central Standard Time on Friday, November 22, 1963, six important shots were taken in Dallas, Texas's Dealey Plaza. Three were real. The bullets fired at President John F. Kennedy, at least one of which killed him. Within weeks, however, the public became aware of the three others, metaphorically speaking, the shots taken at virtually the same time, the photographs of the assassination sequence by Dallas dressmaker Abraham Zapruder, part of a 26-second strip of 35-millimeter film, later considered the most famous and examined film footage in history. The three photos bracketed the seconds between the two shots that felled Kennedy. Frame Z224, figure 1, 
was the first to show Kennedy and Governor John B. Connolly sitting forward of his position in a jump seat after the car emerged from behind a highway sign. The image showed Kennedy twisting his arms unnaturally in reaction to a shot, while Connolly seemed unhurt. Little more than half a second later, frame Z-235, figure 2, captured Connolly's first reaction to a shot. Since a bolt-action rifle required 2.3 seconds to operate between shots, either two separate gunmen fired different shots, virtually proof of conspiracy, or the two victims, seemingly inexplicably, reacted at different times to the same bullet. Finally, frame 313, figure 3, unequivocally showing the second fatal shot to the president's head, also arguably contained evidence of a gunman other than Oswald. These images were to yield two diametrically opposing interpretations in the aftermath of the event, conspiracy or no conspiracy, depending largely on the agendas of the viewers and their willingness or unwillingness to contextualize their interpretations with other evidence. Americans increasingly came to see the Zapruder film as a kind of Rosetta Stone for deciphering the otherwise discordant language of the assassination, as a key to identifying the perpetrators and discovering whether a conspiracy could be confirmed. Ironically, though, the Zapruder frames have turned out to tell us nothing about the actual perpetrators of this particular crime, but their remembering tells us much about the ideal political assassin of the American imagination. This ideal has been very much based on the history of previous presidential assassins. They were all either traitors, John Wilkes Booth, Lincoln's assassin, allegedly mentally ill, Garfield's assassin, Charles Guiteau, or Radical, the anarchist Leon Shigolish, McKinley's assassin. Over time, as the Zapruder shots circulated across a variety of media, institutional settings, and contexts, the ways in which they interacted with this cultural memory changed dramatically. What do these changes say about the representation of Kennedy's assassin? More broadly, what do they tell us about the evolving perception and definition of the perpetrator in American society in the past decades? Lastly, what does their changing status, from documentary to evidentiary to iconic, say of the relation between visual sources on the one hand and political and historical interpretations of the act of perpetration on the other hand? The 1960s and 1970s, the time of investigation and scrutiny. The official Warren Commission investigation, 1963-64, and journalistic organizations such as Life magazine and CBS News were the first to assess the meaning of the Zapruder images. The Warren Commission did not regard the film as the most important piece of evidence in the case before it. Before January 1964, 
when Life shared the complete film and frames with the Commission. The Commissioners had already done much work establishing Oswald's presence in the sixth-floor window, his ownership of the rifle, and lack of alibi. They contextualized the film with the evidence they were already sure of, thereby narrowing the range of questions they posed and their angle of vision. Because three shells were found at the window, and three shots were reported by most witnesses, the film was examined for evidence as to when these shots occurred and from where. The Zapruder film was thus viewed narrowly as a time clock of the assassination that could identify the relative timing of shots and perhaps the number of shooters, but little more. Life magazine, which purchased the film, had a vested interest in its importance, but it too was initially careful to highlight what it could not reveal as much as what it might disclose. Its early issues on the subject, from 1963 to 1966, at first reassured readers that the forensic evidence explained many illusory discrepancies raised by the images. By 1966, however, it was deferring judgment to John Connolly, allowing him to draw categorical conclusions from the images suggestive of conspiracy, based on a magnifying glass and his personal memory. In 1966, as contextualization began to fade, Life finally pronounced doubt about the Commission's findings and called for a new official inquest. In 1967, CBS News broadcast four 90-minute programs over four days and concluded from its investigation that the Commission was probably correct in its conclusions but that the Zapruder film, which it had not been permitted to examine, had to be made available to all as a precondition for any possibility of certainty in the matter. Whether refraining themselves from drawing firm conclusions about their meaning or denying others the chance to do so, the Commission, Life, and CBS News open the floodgates of scrutiny to a public with no such qualms. The impulse by an increasing number of Americans to examine the Zapruder frames arose from a sense that too many facts of the assassination appeared to contradict the Warren Commission's lone gunman thesis. An enormous degree of cognitive dissonance issued from the assassination. The killing occurred at the heyday of popular faith in the omnipotence of American power and wisdom, and yet this all-powerful government could not protect the president from a lifelong nobody armed with a $21 rifle. Moreover, the suspect was a former Marine and confessed communist who defected to the Soviet Union, the country's premier enemy, and who supported Castro's Cuba the nation's second most notorious enemy. Oswald was a palimpsest in the flesh, incongruously embodying the protection of the state as a former Marine and its betrayal as a communist in the same person. Clearly, this man, even if a lone misfit, seems suspiciously connected to the great issues of the day. 
In addition, Oswald was shot dead two days after the assassination while in police custody, a further mockery of the vaunted reputation of American justice, and one seemingly explainable only through a narrative of conspiracy. The establishment had tried, but seemingly failed, to reassert their mastery over the tides of history by explaining the mysteries of the assassination. Many citizens, in turn, were committed to demonstrating the existence of a conspiracy, in part to put the establishment to shame. Only if one or the other group prevailed could an uncanny and unstable period of history be replaced by the restoration of confidence in America's command and control of events. But it turned out to be logically impossible for the establishment to fulfill its charge. There was no way to prove the negative of no conspiracy, at least not in the eyes of the public. But since a conspiracy, if it had indeed taken place, could in theory be run to ground, it became the public's only path to achieving satisfactory answers and therefore historical reassurance. Americans expected conspiracies and had long girded to defeat them. What they had never experienced and could not tolerate was the evident alternative that nobodies could change American history or the notion that the nation could not even crack conspiracies, much less defeat them. This dynamic determined the identity of the perpetrator that Americans would deliberately look for in their scrutiny of the Zabruder films. They saw in these images what they wanted and perhaps needed to see in them, evidence that the perpetrator was a conspirator in league with others and not a lone nut. The three Zabruder images were like screens onto which the viewers projected their own opinions concerning the identity and the motive of the perpetrators. They provided evidence of the timing, relative to one another, of the shots that hit JFK and Connolly, and raised the possibility that a second shooter could be revealed. In addition, they seemed to offer American critics and observers alike the opportunity to restore, through a supposedly proper investigation, a sense of canniness and control over an era that had seemingly gone historically off-track. Historians of memory have observed that the past provokes anxiety when it seems inconsistent with the supposed trend lines of tradition in the present. The idea of the uncanny past holds the sense of a disruption in the way different generations remember the past and the efforts to restore a connection with that past. The Kennedy assassination produced a sense of the historical uncanny from 1963 to the end of the 1970s. A supposed nobody, possibly fronting for a sinister conspiracy, raised questions that the best and brightest of American leadership seemed unable to answer. An American counterculture questioning the omnipotence of the American elite seemed an oxymoron, contradicting the Ur myth of American manifest destiny and introducing a conflict between memory and present reality. To render history canny again, the story of the Kennedy assassination had to be rewritten 
to make it historically consistent, that is, coherently explained by Americans and for Americans. The public criticism of the Warren Commission focused often on its particular interpretations of the Zapruder films, especially those that were said to support its single-bullet theory. In many ways a brilliant discovery, the single-bullet conclusion, as it perhaps deserves to be called, was a linchpin of the no-conspiracy verdict. Unless it could be refuted, the lone gunman theory would remain viable, but without it, a finding of conspiracy was almost unavoidable. It was telling, in view of these realities, that critics of the Commission focused on reinterpreting Z-224 and Z-235. The critic's bête noire was Arlen Specter, the staff member who pioneered the single-bullet theory. Months of analysis, aligning the caliber of the rifle, the facts of shell-casing positioning, the seating positions of JFK and John Connolly in the presidential limousine, and the timing of their movements as revealed by the Zapruder film, left Specter no other possible conclusion than that both men had been initially struck by the same bullet. This in turn solved a problem noted earlier. In Zapruder's frames, Kennedy's first reaction to the shot seemed to precede Connolly's reaction by more than one half second. Since the bolt action of the rifle, manually operated, took no less than 2.3 seconds between shots, this meant that if both men had not been hit by the same bullet, then there had to be two gunmen, the very definition of a conspiracy. None of the other evidence compiled between December 1963 and April 1964, when Specter finalized his theory, confirmed a conspiracy. Logic would therefore suggest that there was an explanation for the differing timings of the two men's reactions to purportedly the same shot. To put it another way, the problem was either to explain why the enormous volume of evidence against the idea of conspiracy theory was wrong, or why the single bullet theory was correct. Specter had not relied on the Zapruder film alone for his conclusion. Frames 224 and 235 merely lined up consistently with the forensic evidence of bullet trajectories, car and six-floor window locations, and body positions in the vehicle. Once again, the placement of the Zapruder images in the context of other evidence went far to explaining any seeming contradictions. Only time would reveal that the Commission had arrived at the correct conclusion. A stable consensus that the single bullet theory was correct was finally achieved in the 1980s. To this day, the theory of a conspiracy, one involving two or more gunmen, has failed to produce a smoking gun. But what the Commission got right would take years to emerge, while its mistakes, primarily in evidence gathering, were more immediately apparent. Seen in the context of its times, what the Commission found and what it ignored only seemed to confirm the trope of elite investigators who considered themselves above the need to defend their conclusions. Meanwhile, the public became increasingly cynical about the findings of the Commission. 
Many of its members thus turned into scrutinizing sleuths, ferreting out the possibilities that the perpetrators, identity and purpose, could be revealed in the light and shadows of assassination images. In 1967, Josiah Thompson, a philosophy professor, wrote Six Seconds in Dallas, a micro-study of the Kennedy assassination, which was really an analysis of the Zapruder film. Thompson had worked for Life magazine and had viewed all the individual frames before leaving the magazine and writing his book. Prohibited from publishing Life's Zapruder images, he published sketches of them from memory to illustrate his conclusions that Kennedy and Connolly could not have been shot by the same gun, thus offering proof of a conspiracy. Life sued him for copyright infringement and lost, making itself a model of intimidating corporate power with something to hide. Thompson analyzed frames 224 and 235 and pushed Connolly's reaction to the supposed single bullet back even further to frame 237 or 238, too late, he claimed, to be hit by that earlier shot. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968 and his killer, James Earl Ray, later arrested, Ray denied culpability, claimed that a mysterious Raoul had fruitlessly urged him to kill King and that Raoul would know the identity of King's real assassin. Ray was shown a photograph of three tramps arrested near the grassy knoll in Dallas on November 22, 1963, which JFK conspiracy critics had unearthed. Ray claimed that Raoul bore a striking likeness to one of the tramps. Thus, assassinations throughout the 1960s, including the assassination of JFK's brother Robert in 1968, became linked in the public's imagination. Seven years later, critics argued that one of the tramps bore a striking likeness to E. Howard Hunt, one of the burglars of the Watergate scandal, then roiling Washington. Images alone seemed to be capable of making sense of the senseless, if only because they were presumed to be neutral and pregnant with possibilities. Next time on Audibly Speaking, Part 2 of 3 from my article Six Shots in Dallas, Framing the Perpetrator of the Kennedy Assassination Through the Zapruder Film, 1963-2013. to 2013. Until then, happy listening.